Well, good morning, everybody. I think we know each other well enough now that I can confess to you that I wasn't good at sports growing up. I may be the only person alive who's ever broken their nose playing tennis. That's how bad I was. But I did play football. And in junior high, uh, after practice, I would walk up to the high school that was adjacent to the same building, wait with my older brother for our dad to pick us up and take us home after practice. And one afternoon, I apparently didn't get all my overflowing testosterone out on the practice field because I managed somehow to pick a fight with my older brother. I just got into arguing that led to pushing and shoving that led to me throwing some punches. He could have kicked my butt. He was bigger. He was stronger. He could have just annihilated me right there on the front lawn of the high school. But he chose instead to just wrap his arms around me and restrain me, yelling at me about how stupid I was, enforcing what he could have done to me and trying to calm me down. I was restrained. There was nothing I could do until I realized there actually was one thing I could do, and I chose to do it. With all the force I could muster, I threw my head backwards into his face. And I split his upper lip wide open, and the blood started to flow. And then it got ugly. He pushed me away, and he let loose all of his fury on me. His friends intervened in my behalf at that point, pulled us apart, and about that point our dad drove up. Car rode home, ride home was really quiet. We got home, and I don't remember much about what happened next. My mom talked to us. It was always my mom. I don't know how it was in your house, but my dad just kind of disappeared, and my mom talked to us. It was always mom. don't remember much of what she said, but I remember five words. You disgraced the family name. Now, we weren't the Kennedys and we weren't the Rockefellers. We didn't have a lot of influence in the town. But to a 14-year-old kid, those words carried a lot of weight. There were expectations of me. I knew that there were certain ways that I was supposed to behave. There were beliefs and values in our families. There was a family connection. And when I acted differently than the beliefs and the values, it reflected not just on me, but on my family, on my parents. From that point on, I carried myself differently. Okay, let's be real. Partly because my older brother, after we got out of earshot of my parents, said to me, if you ever do that again, I'll kill you. But that wasn't the main reason. The main reason was because of the words that my mom had spoken to me. It wasn't out of guilt or fear. It wasn't out of shame. It was honestly because I loved my mom. I loved her too much to ever disappoint her that way again. The Bible teaches us that when we accept Jesus into our lives, we are adopted into God's family. We are his sons. We are his daughters. And as a part of God's family, we have a responsibility. The way Paul says it, 
Those words sound a lot like what my mom said that day, but with a positive spin. Paul says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Now to be fair, it will take us a lifetime to learn to be a representative of Jesus in everything that we do or say, and we'll never get it 100% right. But so many times when we talk about that journey to be a representative of Jesus, the conversation just devolves into principles and techniques. Or at worst, it becomes this competition or comparison between people about who's better or who's worse. And that's not really what it's all about. It's about this relational dynamic between us and Jesus in our spiritual journey. What we're really talking about here is about learning to stay in love with the most important person in our life. So as Darren said earlier, we've been in a three-week series. Uh, Today is the last day I get to back clean up, uh, where we've been talking about authentic church and really working through the foundational principles of what we do here at Westridge. We call them the three E's. And we're all about helping people encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of Jesus. And this morning we want to look at that last word, embody. What does it really mean for us to live out this radical love of God? What would it look like if Jesus came into our lives and impacted our relationships, our priorities, our passions, What would it look like if we were to live out God's love in our everyday lives in such a way that when people looked at us, watched us, interacted with us, they would see God working in and through us in everything that we do? Now, my favorite passage in all of the New Testament about this is Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses. And what I love is that in four very brief paragraphs, Paul just lays it out in very practical language for us. And he helps us understand how we can begin to embody God's radical love in our lives. The very first thing that he says, straight out of the chute, is we're going to need a new perspective. In the first four verses, he deals with that. Here's what he says. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along with your eyes to the ground. Absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. When Christ, your real life, remember shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. I think the challenge for any of us who accept Christ, and then in the the whole journey with Him, really, is to begin to let His love begin to find expression in our lives. So often, I find that we simply try to will ourselves into a new way of living. We just try to gut it out. 
Our efforts amount at times to simply focusing on our old habits and trying to stop them, or focusing on something new that we want to do and trying to get ourselves to do that. The Apostle Paul was really a veteran of that approach. If you read Romans chapter 7, or even chapters 6, 7, and 8 in the book of Romans, what you'll find is that Paul lived that approach. And here's the result of that. Listen to what he says. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Does that sound like you? Sounds like me. Been there, done that. Paul goes on to say in those verses in Romans that if we could accomplish real and meaningful change in our lives on our own, we really didn't need God's help to begin with. Jesus didn't have to die. So this whole gutting it out approach, deciding not to do bad, deciding to do good on our own without God's help, that's not the way to go about it. A better approach, Paul says, is to shift your focus entirely. Set your heart on Jesus. Fall in love with him. Instead of just simply doing behavior modification, try something different. And as crazy as it sounds, try something as simple as thinking about Jesus as you go about your ordinary, everyday life. With all of its ups and downs, with all of its decisions and challenges. No matter what you're doing, Try to bring him into it. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would he treat your neighbor, your boss, your family member in that situation? And that new way of thinking, that new perspective, helps to bring about a new way of life. Secondly, Paul says, you're going to have some house cleaning to do. Now, at the risk of losing my man card this morning... I'm going to admit something else. Not only was I not good at sports, but I like some shows on HGTV. (laughs) Specifically the shows that have to do with home improvement projects. Connie and I for 30 years have done stuff in every home that we have owned, and I like to do those. Now what I've learned is when you start to do a home improvement project, there's usually some junk that has to be torn out of the house before you can put the new beautiful stuff in. And that's not the tearing out is not really the fun part. When you start to tear old stuff out, it usually exposes problems and issues that you didn't know about and you weren't prepared to deal with. Unexpected challenges, we like to call them. Paul says before you can begin to build your new life in Christ, there's some demo work that has to be done in your old life. And he's brutally honest. When you accept Christ, when you accept God's love, your old life is dead. But it doesn't mean your old struggles are over. That's why he says, put to death the old earthly things, the sinful things that are lurking within you. They're still there. Paul says we have some house cleaning to do as a part of our new life if we're going to embody Christ. God's love. We have allowed, and will continue to allow, ourselves to take on attitudes and actions that are definitely destructive and make our lives a mess. 
And we have to take the time to clear them out to make room for the good things of God in our life. So what's on Paul's list? He gets really specific. You ready for this? He says, Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, with impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when you were still a part of this world. All of these sins listed in Colossians 3, 5, which this is just one verse, all of these sins have to do with deep desires of the heart. They have to do with something we want, but is forbidden to us. Something we want, but belongs to somebody else. Something that's off limits, somebody else's spouse. A car we really can't afford. Something we tend to get obsessed with. We have to have it. And when we cross that line, when we come to that moment where we say we have to have it, we've taken God out of first place in our lives. See, that's why those sins matter. Because it's ultimately about defining what has first place in our lives. It's not that any of the possessions are bad. It's not that God in those verses is saying sex is bad. He created it. The thread running through that and through this whole passage is what's going to have first place in your life? What will you worship? Now, a lot of us read those, that list and go, yeah, I'm okay. No house cleaning I have to do. No demo project in there for me. And I wish Paul had stopped there. He didn't. He goes on with another list. Now's the time also to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. And don't lie to each other. For you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. How about that list? Did you make it through that one unscathed? I didn't. I'll just confess it. I didn't. Every passage that I teach on, I always read through in multiple translations because I want to get the full texture of what's being said before I stand up here. And the second word in there, rage, can also be translated irritability. If there's anything I've struggled with in my life in the last three to five years, it's irritability. And don't ask me about it later, okay? <laughs> irritability. I can blame it on a lot of things. I can blame it on some health struggles I've had. I can blame it on stress at work. I can blame it on losing my job two years ago. I can blame it on a lot of things. But the truth is, when I'm irritable, I say things that hurt the people I love. And when I behave that way, I'm not embodying the radical love of Jesus. So what is it for you? Are you prone to angry outbursts? Do you silently or not so silently scheme to hurt people who've hurt you? That's malice. Do you say things, whether they're true or not, that attack somebody's character or destroy their reputation? Or maybe you don't say them. Maybe you just post them on Facebook. Or what about dirty language, as the passage says? Foul talk, 
crude, coarse words, or as my grandma used to say, words that would make a sailor blush. What is it in your life that needs to be cleaned out? It's a pretty tough list that Paul writes. And if we really live in that list and say, there's some demo work that needs to be done in our lives, if we live with the list, it'll make us squirm. But what we're talking about is doing everything as Jesus would do it if he were living in our place. That's what it means to be his representative in this life, to embody God's love to the people around us. And house cleaning? Never easy if you do it right. Paul goes on, though, to give us some encouragement. He says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn. It's a process. As you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. I love how one writer explains verse 11, because a lot of other people will talk about this and go, this is about cultural differences in the church. Or this is about racial differences in the church. Mm -mm. No, it's better than that. It's better, trust me. Because what Paul's really saying here well, let me just illustrate it this way. Have you ever been out with somebody and they'll say something like this? Yeah, I mean, seriously, of course I look at women. I'm hot-blooded. I'm Italian. <laughs> or have you ever heard somebody say, yeah, seriously, I lose my temper. I'm Irish. Or, yeah, I'm blunt. I'm just like my mom. Or I hold a grudge just like my dad. That's what Paul's getting at here. Paul is saying in verse 11, you're blaming some things. You're blaming your tendencies in behavior. He's writing to this church and saying, you're blaming your tendencies and you're excusing bad behavior based on your family, your genetics, your history. That's not good, Paul says. Because in Christ, you have a new nature. It doesn't matter what you were before. You are learning to become like Jesus. Your old nature is a crutch, an excuse. Don't lean on it. You have a new nature. Lean on Jesus and learn to be like him. Even an Italian can change. Hey, sorry, Frank. And when we change... When you make those kinds of big changes in your life, it's amazing. And they can happen. Every once in a while, I get privileged to, to get up close to somebody here at Westridge who's had amazing changes happen in their life. And even more rarely, I get to share their story with you. About a year ago, I met Ian. Many of you who come to first service all the time may not know Ian. A year ago, he sent me an email and asked if we could have coffee. And in the first couple of minutes of having coffee with him, he shared that he had not been to church for 13 years. And he'd only been to Westridge twice. Amazing changes have happened in his life in the last year. And I asked him if he'd share his story with you this morning. And he's doing, he will courageously do so via video. But I'd love for you just to get a glimpse into what's happened in his life and the changes that had come have come. 
So if you will, just take a look at this video this morning and Ian's story. For a long time, I had written religion off. Um, I grew up in a church, very dedicated, actually had plans to go uh, into Presbyterian Seminary. Um, watched the, uh, the pastor's wife uh, run off with one of the elders of the church. Watched my father run off with another woman and my family get divorced. And I think the last straw for me that made me leave the church was when my brother was killed by a drunk driver. Um, at that point, I basically said I want nothing to do with God or religion uh, and walked away. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was a physical reaction. I mean, I, I drove past my church with the middle finger out of my car window and said, I'm done with this. I think I was kept away from the church out of, uh, you know, several facets. Resentment, um, fear, and, and ultimately a bit of arrogance. I had the feeling that how could God let these things happen? How could God let, you know, um, my brother be killed? How could God let the scandal that would happen in, uh, inside a church happen? I first came to Westridge um, uh, in search of something, in search of direction. Uh, my life was, was probably the lowest point it's been at. Um, my marriage was failing. Um, and I was in search of something I had lost. And, and I think that um, that ultimately was God. The first Sunday I came here, um, I was separated from my wife. Um, really dark place. And I came in and I sat in one of the dark corner tables and cried for an hour. Um, the message hit home. You know, I came in, yeah, and it was, uh, it might have even been Everybody Hurts, which does not make an emotional day any better, by the way. Um, and it was R.A.M. And uh, again, we came back to the Never Church as usual, and I went, well, this is a pretty progressive deal. I, I, I could really get into this. And, um, you know, having, having people like yourself and Darren who will stand up there and say, I'm faulted too. You know, I'm not looking down, I'm looking next to me. Big difference in the church I grew up. You know, in the last year, my, my life has changed um, just, just exponentially. The strength and, and courage that Westridge has helped provide in my life to make me want to be a better father to my children, a better husband to my wife, better in my profession, everything I do. Um, has, has really stemmed from kind of that first visit and, and every Sunday since um, and, and being able to build off a better relationship with God. My relationship with uh, my wife Nicole is probably the best it's been in 13 years. Um, you know, she started coming a few months after I did. While we were separated, obviously, we were still uh, in communication. And I said, you know what? Let's just come to church with me for a Sunday. Let's give this a shot. Um, and she's been coming loyally every Sunday now since, and, and it's, it's a staple to our week, and, and it's, a, it's a, a strength point in, in every week. Yeah. Ian's a very different guy today than he was a year ago. He's done some house cleaning. He's made some changes in his life. And God has done an amazing thing. And many of you have interacted with him and didn't even know his story. And it's been amazing to watch. 
part of what he's done is this third thing that Paul encourages as well, and it's he's put on some new clothes. It's kind of fascinating. Paul says if we're going to embody Christ, we've got to put on some new things as well. And I don't know how it is at your house, but one of the big questions for us, I mean, we encountered it this weekend with a wedding uh, rehearsal and then a wedding yesterday. There's always this big question for us of what are we going to wear? We have no idea. I mean, it's, we're never really comfortable with our choices until we get to the place and we, we see what everybody else is wearing and we go, okay, we're good. You know? Uh, and part of it is that the categories keep changing. I mean, it used to be there were just a few categories and you knew it's either a suit or it's jeans. You know, it's kind of, there's just no in-between. So I looked online this week and I found out there are now multiple categories and subcategories in between. So it's no wonder I'm confused. There's formal and then there's semi-formal. Then there's this new category that I didn't even know existed that's called lounge suit slash cocktail dress. I had no idea. Business standard is the next. Then business casual corporate. Then business casual relaxed. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Then smart casual, which I don't stand a chance at. And then casual. It's no wonder I get confused. And so now I've learned the smartest thing I can do is just look at Connie and say, what do you want me to wear? And, yeah. and then she goes, I don't care, which is totally not true, because I'll put something on and she'll say, you're wearing that? And I'm, my answer now is, after 30 years of marriage, obviously not. What are you going to wear? Now, God's made it really simple for us. As one translation says in verse 12, it says... Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. God's made it simple. For this new life, God's already decided what's best for us to wear to embody His radical love to those around us. He's picked out the qualities that will help us represent Christ wherever we go. And the more you've cleaned house, the easier it is to put on this new wardrobe. So here's what God wants us to wear. Tender-hearted mercy. Kindness. Humility, gentleness, patience. Beginning to embody God's love is as straightforward and simple as putting on your clothes every single day. God placed the power within us and has given us the choice to wear these things. To let those be the guiding principles in all of our dealings with all of the people around us. Now that doesn't mean we'll be perfect, right? Wow. Every one of us is going to blow it, right? I got about a third of the people to agree with that. So we're going to do this little exercise. Look at the person beside you and say this. You're going to blow it, right? Turn and say that. You don't have to convince them. They're going to prove my point before this day is over. We are all going to constantly learn as we live this life in Christ. We're going to learn to be more like Him. We're going to learn by our mistakes and our successes. And we need to give each other grace as we grow. I think that's why Paul said what he did next. Make allowance for each other's faults. Plan on it in advance. I wasn't kidding when I said the person beside you is going to blow it before the day is out. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone 
who offends you, not just those who deserve it. And remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with, with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. We are going to make mistakes in the journey. We just are. So count on the people around you blowing it. Count on your family. <laughs> well, that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? Count on your family making mistakes. Count on them hurting you. Count on your friends letting you down. Count on your church family making mistakes. We're not perfect. Count on the leaders. Count on your pastors. Well, no, never mind on that one. Um, Count on the people all around you. Make allowance for that. And when it happens, find a way to talk about the problems, to talk about the hurts, to talk about the tension in a way that doesn't create more tension and more hurt and forgive. Put it away and move on. And then Paul says, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to peace and always be thankful. Let peace, not anger, not malice, not all the junk we talked about before. Let peace rule in your hearts. That word peace in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, that word peace was an arbitrator, an umpire. It was a word from the sporting arena. What Paul is actually saying here is, when we get in disagreements, not if, when, when problems and struggles come, let peace resolve the issue in a way that will promote harmony in your own soul and in the church. I love the realistic way that Paul approaches this. I love the way that he teaches us to live out, to embody the radical love of God. And he says it's a lifelong process for us. Because we'll constantly be refocusing our lives, clearing out the junk in our lives, and working and reworking these character traits into who we are, even when we thought we were done with them. We'll get sideways with each other and we'll need to extend grace. Just like God extends grace to us every single day of our lives. And God's not surprised by any of that. God doesn't look down from heaven and when stuff happens, go, you know, throw an elbow into Jesus' ribs and go, oh my gosh, did you see that? He's not surprised at the stuff that I do or that you do. He knows just how imperfect we really are. Paul describes our human condition this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this light, God's love. We have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like clay jars containing this great treasure. Another translation says, we're just a bunch of cracked pots. We clean up pretty good on Sunday morning. And to somebody who walks in for the first time, we look like we have it all together. But let's be honest. No matter how, much, how good we look on the outside, we're all the same on the inside. We're just a bunch of broken and chipped pots whose greatest treasure is the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And if we live our lives correctly as representatives of Jesus, we'll live with the realization that it's about making progress, not being perfect. 
and we'll help each other in the journey. We'll keep our eyes, we'll keep our hearts focused on the one thing that matters most, Jesus. Because one day, one day, when Jesus appears again, our life with all of its struggles will be over. And there won't be any more need for us to clean house. There won't be any need for us to ask for or give forgiveness. And on that day, our real life will begin.